You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 511511 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 7th, 2022, and I really, really should be preparing more. I probably should for a talk I'm giving tonight at Youth Group on the subject of worship, encouragement with regards to worship. More on that in a minute, but it's been a few days. It's been a few days since I last recorded a podcast, as I've been saying here recently. The new normal for me, at least uh, on the project I'm working on right now as a controls programmer, is not conducive to podcasting as often as I was. But that's okay. That's all right. Things change. As things change, you adapt to accomplish what the uh, top priorities are. And the top priority for me is not podcasting. I don't do this for a living. I make no money whatsoever on the podcasting thing. I am not a professional. I am an amateur. And that is to say, if you drill down into the definition of what an amateur is, I do this for the love of it. And I do this more to the point for the love of my maker and for the love of family and friends and people that I know and country, et cetera, et cetera. And that actually is more of what I want to talk about in this episode is uh, the idea of doing things because people close to you will benefit from them. And how do you prioritize, right? You can't necessarily do all things for all people all the time. We are not infinite. We are finite. That means we have finite resources, energy, attention, time. We have finite capabilities. And so the flavor that comes into life and the variety and the interesting um, dilemma in every moment, in every day, in every season of life is how do we balance our opportunities, all the things that we could do? How do we balance those against what we actually do? And how do we make decisions and prioritize, et cetera, et cetera? So for instance, for example, to get us started off, I (laughs) just opened this podcast episode with Waka Waka, this time for Africa, which apparently was the World Cup song for 2010. And as you may have noticed, the World Cup has been going on again, you know, major soccer competition, championship, tournament of all the world's nations, all the best soccer teams from all over the world coming together and duking it out, but only in a figurative sense, right? This is only a metaphor for war. And we don't actually want you guys to go to war, but we want this to be a proxy as sports has always been a proxy for martial competition between groups, between tribes, between peoples, between localities, between, in this case, nations, national soccer teams. But this song has been getting uh, sung, at least certain parts of it, in my house by Lawrence and my children here recently. And the best we can figure is the reason it's getting sung is because it's been played with a lot of YouTube shorts that uh, our kids have watched here recently, probably related to the world cup being on here recently, but it's a funny, it's a funny thing because we don't listen to Shakira (laughs) as a general rule in my house. So it's kind of like, wait a second. Uh, where did you guys hear that? (laughs) Why are you guys listening to Shakira? Um, is it's kind of a funny thing, and yet I got to listening to it because I don't think I'd ever heard it before, and I'm like, huh, it's kind of an interesting title. And what's the backstory here? Well, I, <clears throat> as best I can figure, this time for Africa was a kind of, um, you know, hey guys, this World Cup is 
for Africa. South Africa is where the 2010 FIFA World Cup was played. And that's, uh, I guess, why the song, it was subtitled or in parentheses titled This Time for Africa. That's why Shakira is singing that as she goes along uh, constantly, uh, This Time for Africa. But it's, you know, it's a funny thing because South Africa is one country uh, among many. Africa is a continent. It's not a country. And so even just in saying this time for Africa, you know, that's an outside perspective. Do Africans, and this is an honest question, do Africans themselves think first and foremost, I'm an African? So also for me as an American, do I think to myself first and foremost, I am a North American? Or do I think to myself, I am a West Hemispherian, or, you know, do, do I think to myself along those lines? Uh, well, no, no, I don't any more than I think to myself, I'm an Earthian. You know, if we started interacting with, you know, aliens from outer space, if it turned out that there are alien races from other planets and we started interacting with them, well, maybe it would be kind of like those old sci-fi stories Earthman, you know, you you would just refer to yourself as an Earthman, or they would refer to you as uh, an Earthman or an Earth woman or an Earth child, kind of like in uh, C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, where yeah, he is the Earthman. You know, that's that's what uh, he is. That's what differentiates him. But from the perspective of the rest of the world, Africa might be Africa, South Africa might be Africa. But if you're an African, I would I would just t- take a guess. You probably identify yourself more with the specific country or the specific tribe within Africa that you hail from or that you have grown up in or that your family is a part of or what have you. And you don't think of yourself first and foremost as an African. You scale up and out. And depending on if you're interacting with people, let's say in a World Cup scenario, then you start differentiating yourself and you say, well, as an African, you know, I think this way or that way. So also with Europeans, do Europeans think of themselves first and foremost in their everyday life? If they are living close to home, do they think of themselves first and foremost as Europeans or do they think of themselves first and foremost as Germans or Brits or Frenchmen or what have you, right? Italians or Spaniards, you know, of course, of course, they think of themselves first and foremost based on what country they're from. And that's the case as well. When you've got these teams playing against each other is they are thinking in terms of uh, their national team, their national pride. And it's an interesting thing. It's just an interesting thing I want to touch on ever so briefly, and then we'll move on, that it's been deemed acceptable to have national pride if you're rooting for your sports team. But how silly would it be if you were scolded every time you cheered on your team for scoring a goal against some other country's team? Because, hey, you know what? That's very close-minded of you. What's the difference? We should be cheering when anybody scores a goal whatsoever. Well, at that point, it just get, it just gets silly and ridiculous. And, you know, you you don't... You don't even show up to watch the game and why even have anybody play it if you're not allowed to root for anybody. Nobody's allowed to really win it. And also, by extension, nobody really ever loses. Everybody wins all the time, no matter what, regardless of ability or talent or skill or determination or hard work or any of that. That that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And that's not the way the world works. Now, in the meantime, at, you know, on the way to... Uh, us talking about how the world actually does work. I want to mention a story from the Daily Wire about Russia and the G7 and the EU implementing an oil price cap. So reporting from the Daily Wire, Ben Zeisloft, December 5th, that is two days ago, G7 countries, and I quote, the European Union and Australia committed on Friday to implementing a global $60 per barrel price cap on Seaborne crude oil from Russia beginning on Monday. Members of the G7, which include Canada, France, Germany, 
Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US announced the proposed move earlier this year. A statement from the US Treasury Department announced that the initiative will, quote, maintain the supply of Russian oil to the global market, end quote, while reducing revenues for the nation, which is currently invading Ukraine. I think they actually have, sorry, Ben, I think they already have invaded Ukraine. I think uh, maybe a different turn of phrase there might be more appropriate. That ship has sailed. They have invaded Ukraine. They are currently uh, waging war on Ukraine. That's probably a better way to put it. But, and I quote the EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, from a recent speech, this price cap will benefit directly emerging and developing economies and it will be adjustable over time so that we can react to market developments. Continuing on, Ben Zeisloft's reporting reads, the price cap will only allow the maritime services industry, which includes sectors such as insurance and trade finance, to provide their services for Russian oil sold below $60 per barrel. Brent crude, the leading global price benchmark for crude oil, drilled in the Atlantic Ocean is approximately $83 per barrel as of Monday. So, you know, a few thoughts on this. For one, price caps do not work. Price caps relate directly to supply and demand. And if you just say it is not permissible to buy oil above this point, uh, it must be sold at this point, you know, it, it, it just it just does not work. It does not work to do that ever. You can't set floors and ceilings unless you are prepared to deal with shortages uh, or overabundance. And then you have the price crash, and then you have the price uh, actually skyrocket uh, well beyond what you've set the limit to on the black market. You create black markets when you try to manipulate prices in this way, when you try and institute price caps and price floors. You, you mess with supply and demand like this, and you will create black markets, and you will create shortages and overabundances. And that's exactly what will happen here. The clear solution to the issue of expensive oil or the goal of trying to bring down revenues for Russia, the clear solution is produce more oil in other countries. You don't want Russia to be making all this money and sustaining its war machine, selling oil. Well, then have other countries step up like the United States, for instance. We've got lots of oil here. Uh, I think some of what I've read indicates 400 plus years. Let's produce more oil here. And if you love renewable energy, if you love electric vehicles and all the rest, well then, there's nothing quite like having a strong economy and uh, you know more disposable income for encouraging and facilitating the development of those technologies, the scalability of those technologies, the uh, environmental friendliness of some of those technologies is dubious at best. And we're just chasing the shiny object collectively. If we allow ourselves to be told, we've got to shift all of our investment, all of our capital, all of our political power to people who want us to only acquire the renewable stuff. If the renewable stuff was there, well, then that also would bring the price of oil down on its own. But of course, it's not there. The tech is not there. It's not scalable. It's not it, it's, it's not sufficiently advanced. And uh, there too, I mean, again, with the artificial engineering, central planning of the economy, not just at a national level, but now let's try it at a global level. Let's just scale it up. If it wasn't working at smaller levels, let's just scale it up and maybe it'll work if we do it everywhere, for everyone, all the time, uh, it's not going to work in that case either. And in fact, the failures and the problems are only going to be all the bigger as you scale it up. But also from the Daily Wire, Facebook owner Meta reportedly could remove news from the platform if Congress passes a controversial bill. Facebook's parent company said Monday that it could be forced to remove news from the platform. And you know what? Uh, <laughs> that wouldn't be maybe the worst thing in a lot of people's minds. Uh, actually, I think there's a lot of folks like myself who 
after several years of being censored, we've already decided we're just not going to share all that much news on here because uh, what's the point, right? What's the point? People are just going to get upset. It's going to get flagged for misinformation. It's going to get taken down. It's going to get shadow banned. We're going to get shadow banned. It's going to be ugly debates. Maybe uh, bots will be sent after us to punish us and you know, <laughs> uh, make an example of us publicly. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 a funny thing that Democrats they want this bill to go through. It's known as the Journalism Competition and Preservation Act. That's a misnomer. It's a euphemism for let's give corporate media the ability to collectively bargain with companies like Google and Meta. As if they should be getting paid for links that are shared. And therefore, if Google and Meta, for instance, don't want to pay those companies for the links that are shared on their platforms, well, then uh, they can just censor and they can censor selectively. This is a backdoor for saying we can censor selectively whoever we don't want to pay. And, uh, it, you know, it's 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 dirty. Right, it's dirty. I I perceive it in timing as being an end run around Twitter and what's going on at Twitter with Elon Musk at the helm and his giving files to Matt Taibbi, a journalist who is reporting on the Hunter Biden laptop and the censorship that interfered with, meddled with, manipulated fraudulently the 2020 election on behalf of the FBI and the DNC links were taken down for supposedly being hacked materials. That was just the excuse that they were running with. That gave them some cover that they knew in based on internal conversations that have been released and are being shared with the world. Now uh, they knew there at Twitter that that was a sketchy uh, rationale and it probably wouldn't hold in the long run, you know, initially it was like, oh, this is Russian misinformation. And then it was, oh, this is hacked materials and we can't share hacked materials, even though if it's a damaging thing to Republicans like Donald Trump, for instance, for things to be quote unquote leaked, well then, yeah, by all means, you you can share to your heart's content, share far and wide. But then of course, Twitter employees donate 99% to Democrats, Democrat uh, uh, candidates. And so therefore, <laughs> therefore, uh, we're going to obviously see as misinformation things which contradict our core principles, our presuppositions as Democrats. For the same reasons we think the Democrats are the better candidates or the better party or their ideas are better, we're also going to perceive and then label and then action, so-called, aka censor, content which contradicts or argues against on our platform the principles of the Democrat Party and the progressive ideology that we hold to. Now, here's a quote from Meta. This is you know Meta's statement that they put out. If Congress passes an ill-considered journalism bill as part of national security legislation, we will be forced to consider removing news from our platform altogether rather than submit to government-mandated negotiations that unfairly disregard any value we provide to news outlets through increased traffic and subscriptions, Meta said in a statement. A Journalism, Competition, and Preservation Act fails to recognize the key fact publishers and broadcasters put their content on our platforms themselves because it benefits their bottom line, not the other way around. No company should be forced to pay for content users don't want to see, and that's not a meaningful source of revenue. The statement continued, put simply, the government creating a cartel-like entity which requires one private company to subsidize other private entities is a terrible precedent for all American businesses. Now, let me just point out that publishers, broadcasters do put their content or have in the past put their content on Meta's platform, Facebook, because it was thought that it would benefit their bottom line. A lot of conservative commentators like Stephen Crowder, like Ben Shapiro, like Matt Walsh have been saying, and I've been listening to their content, their podcasts, uh, they've been saying here recently, hey, we got our start before the algorithms changed, right? I, I know at least Matt Walsh and Stephen Crowder have been saying that pretty openly. 
We got our start. We built our audience. We built our brand as commentators prior to the algorithms changing, and we couldn't have done it after. And in part, uh, you know, I know this as somebody who was trying to launch right as <laughs> all of these algorithms were being changed. The algorithms were changed so as to make it hard to impossible for people like me to become, uh, you know, as notable as a Matt Walsh. You know, they didn't want more Matt Walshes, in other words, and they didn't want more Steven Crowders, for instance. They didn't want, if you go back a few decades further, uh, they didn't want <laughs> uh, you know, radio hosts like Rush Limbaugh. They, they didn't want more radio, radio hosts uh, like him. And so there were a lot of attempts, uh, I believe through the 90s, particularly after uh, stories were broke concerning Monica Lewinsky and the scandal there with Bill Clinton, former President Bill Clinton. <clears throat> Democrats tried to figure out ways to censor and silence Rush Limbaugh types by saying, well, there, there needs to be an even and fair uh, distribution of conservative and liberal commentators on the airwaves. And so we're going to have to establish some quotas. And this was all supposed to be this backdoor for trying to silence or uh, decrease, diminish the influence of folks like Rush Limbaugh. And so you had liberals who tried to take some uh, market share away from Rush Limbaugh, tried to get into doing radio, and they just weren't as popular. They weren't as interesting in large part because the folks who are listening uh, know what's up typically, by and large. Not all, not all, not everybody, but by and large, the audience is not there for the liberal radio host who's going to try and do something like Rush Limbaugh. It's not convincing in part because I would say it's not true. It's uh, it, People smell a rat in a way that they don't necessarily. You might not like everything that Rush Limbaugh used to say back in the day. You, know, you might not like everything that Ben Shapiro has to say these days. You might not appreciate everything that Stephen Crowder has to say these days or Michael Knowles or Alex Jones or Glenn Beck or you know any of these other controversial figures who are constantly criticizing the left and liberals and Democrats. You might not like everything that they have to say, but whatever their personality is, whatever they're putting out as far as their brand, it resonates in a way that the Democrat attempts and efforts just don't. You know, it's kind of like Marvel and DC. Marvel comes out with the Iron Man movies. You know, that that's what kicked off this Marvel extended universe, cinematic universe uh, push that created who knows how many movies at this point? I mean, lots, dozens at this point. Lots and lots of content and people eating it up. DC tried to play catch up with rebooting Batman and Superman and doing the Justice League thing and having Wonder Woman movies and Aquaman and all the rest. And yet it felt like they were trying to catch up and it felt stale and it felt rushed. No pun intended with regards to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, it, you know, it felt uh, artificial. It didn't feel real. It felt like they were just doing this so that they could say, ah, yes, see, don't forget about us. We we also still exist and are relevant and, and can make movies too, uh, even if they're terrible and we shouldn't have. But it's the same game that's being played here with regards to this bill that is being uh, considered, proposed, uh, that the United States Congress might pass. It's the same thing here. And this is part of why I just really don't invest a whole lot of my time and attention in creating content on Facebook or uh, YouTube for that matter. I was dabbling in YouTube for a bit. And then I thought, you know, I think I can create a lot more content if I just stick to the podcasting thing. So I'm going to do that. Watch for the Democrats to go after that next. If they're able to lock down the ability of conservatives to communicate or spread news or share news, talk about the news on Facebook. They've already got me off of Twitter. I'm still not back on. Not sure what's up with that. 
but watch for them to go after podcasts next. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I just, I think to myself about this debate, uh, the monk debate that was recently had that I saw at the blaze. Uh, it looks like Douglas Murray and journalist Matt Taibbi, you might recognize his name if you've been paying any attention to the Twitter files business. You know, these two guys, more conservative uh, as it's perceived, if only because they're arguing against the liberals. Douglas Murray, I've read a few of his books. He's got some really great insights, I think, and he keys in on some very important trends in Europe with regards to uh, the immigration, the importation in mass of people from other cultures, in particular the Muslim world, to Europe over the past several decades since World War II to make up for all the men who died in the war. He is openly a homosexual. He, he's not a super conservative guy in the sense of, you know, he's this He's certainly not, you know, a Christian nationalist type character, although folks on the left, they wouldn't care if they hear him say anything about the positives of having Christian civilization, Christian morals, Christian worldview informing our laws in the West still. And it's us not replacing those with Islamic Sharia law or Islamic values or radical leftist totalitarian values. You know, if he says anything along those lines, they immediately want to rush to, ah, he's this far right, you know, neo-Nazi, et cetera, et cetera. But Matt Taibbi, he wrote for Rolling Stone. He has, everything I hear, been a liberal for his entire career as a journalist. And in these monk debates, which you should definitely check out, he talks about how he grew up the son of a journalist, the grandson of people who were in the news business. This is in his DNA. This is part of the family business that you do these things. You you cover the news. You write the story. You let the story tell itself. You follow the facts. You write the story however the facts uh, would inform you. And yet he points to the, the already too corporate and collective and monopolistic uh, nature of the media And how that's not so good. You shouldn't trust the mainstream media because it is too many eggs in too few baskets. And individual journalists are terrified to write something that would be contrary to the official narrative. They're they're afraid that if they don't memory hole certain things, my word's not his, that they themselves and their career will be memory hole. They will be canceled. They will lose their job. They will get blacklisted. They won't be able to get a job anywhere. So he's being put in the conservative category if only because he is uh, drawing attention to what the Dems at Twitter and in the FBI have been doing for years to censor conservatives on Twitter. And I think there's a lot more to come. I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. They've just scratched the surface. But I'm going to play just a little bit of a clip here from that debate. You should check out the full debate But here is an opening remark or part of the opening remark from Matt Taibbi. And I think it's really, really good stuff. Check it out. Be it resolved. Don't trust mainstream media. My name is Matt Taibbi. I've been a reporter for 30 years and I argue for the resolution. You should not trust mainstream media. I grew up in the press. My father was a reporter. My stepmother was a reporter. My godparents were reporters. Uh, Basically, every adult I knew growing up was a reporter. So I actually love the news business, but I mourn for it. Uh, It's destroyed itself by getting away from its basic function, which is just to tell us what's happening. My father had a saying, the story's the boss. In the American context, this means that if the facts tell you the Republicans were the villains in a political disaster, then you write it that way. If the facts point more to the Democrats, you write that. If they're both culpable, as was often the case for me when I investigated Wall Street for almost 10 years after the 2008 crash, uh, you write the story that way. We're not supposed to thumb the scale. Our job is just to call things as we see them and leave the rest up to you. But 
We don't do that now. The story is no longer the boss. Uh, instead, we sell narrative in a dysfunctional new business model. Once the uh, commercial strategy of the news business was to go for the whole audience, a TV news broadcast was aired at dinner time, and it was designed to be watched by the entire family. Everyone from your crazy right-wing uncle to the sulking lefty teenager in the corner. This system had flaws, but making an effort to talk to everybody had benefits. For one thing, it inspired trust. Gallup polls twice, twice showed Walter Cronkite to be the most trusted person in all of America. That would never happen with a newsreader today. With the arrival of the internet, some outlets found that instead of going after the whole audience, it made more financial sense to pick one uh, demographic and try to dominate it. How do you do that? That's easy. You just pick an audience and feed it news you know they'll like. That's it. That That's just it. That, that is right there uh, what it is. That's the problem with Fox News. That's the problem with MSNBC. As he goes on to explain, you've got 95% Republicans making up the audience at Fox News. You've got 95% Democrats making up the audience at MSNBC. And we're no longer talking about real actual journalism. At that point, you're talking about uh, basically just an echo chamber. That, that's what it is. And, and you get that online too. You get these little boutique specialty blends for each individual person. That's what Facebook has been doing with its curation of news and then inserting what they want to be the trending story and what source they want you to see and read. That's what Twitter has been doing. That's what big, big tech in general has been doing, Google and Apple News and all the rest. That's what they've been doing is trying to target you with what you want to hear and with what you want to see. And then they slip in or remove what is favorable to their favorite agenda. Now, as this uh, reporting over at The Blaze points out, regarding the conclusion of the Monk debate, Joseph McKinnon writes uh, December 3rd on this, as in previous Monk debates, the audience voted both before and after the debate. Uh, quote, before Wednesday's mainstream media debate, 52% of attendees and listeners voted against distrusting the media. That is to say they voted for, no, we should. We should trust the media. 48% supported the resolution to distrust mainstream media. Of those who participated in the pre-vote, 82% indicated they were amenable to be swayed in either direction. So, you know, they, they were fairly evenly split, but they said, okay, I, you know, I'm open-minded. 82%, that's, that's a good solid number. It changed my mind, right? As Steven Crowder says, changed my mind. Uh, quote, after the debate, Taibi and Murray secured a vote gain of 39%. The final result in favor of the resolution, don't trust mainstream media, was 67 to 33. Still too many people, there's 33%. There's still, we're like, no, I still trust the mainstream media, uh, the corporate media. But, but that's a huge gain. That's a huge gain that these guys uh, won in the course of the debate against Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist, and Malcolm Gladwell, author. That is actually, according to the National Review, the largest margin ever recorded at a Monk debate. And I can confirm that because I went to the website for the Monk debates and scrolled through, and they have all their debates from the years previous listed along with who won and by what margin this is this is indeed the highest margin win ever recorded uh in, in all the years that they've been doing these monk debates but on a totally different note maybe possibly a lighter note there's a story at notthebee.com this one's uh, a bit more fun from cardinal pritchard Georgia sheepdog kills eight coyotes in epic battle after pack attacks his sheep. And I'm looking at this dog and you know what this dog looks like to me? You can't see the picture, but if you go over to not the bee, look up this story from the New York post. This looks to me like a great Pyrenean mountain dog or a great Pyrenees as they're also known. We actually had one when I was a kid. She was a great dog. We named her Daisy. Great, great dog. Sweet, sweetheart. Uh, shed like crazy, long white hair, big white dog, 
But she was the sweetest dog to my brother and I. And if you can believe it, our family cats, very, very protective. If some other dog would be around and showing any kind of aggression whatsoever towards my brother and I or our cats, <laughs> uh, she was very, very serious. And she was on it in no time flat. And I'll never forget, there was one day uh, when, when I was a teenager, she was chained out back just to you know get her, you know, we didn't have a fence and didn't have uh, a lot of land there in Hillsborough, Ohio, just a small little yard. She was chained out back under the tree, just sunning herself and laying down. And the neighbor two houses down, not J.P. Chavez at that time, uh, I don't remember who they were, but they had a dog named Bear, a big yellow lab that actually I think was as big or bigger than Daisy was. He might have had a little bit of weight on her. And they usually got along just fine. If he would get out and come over and visit with her or if she got off the chain and went over, you know, they would play and get along just fine. Well, this one day I'm out in the yard doing some yard work and Bear was loose and our cat princess, Calico Cat, who was very old at that point, she was just walking around. Bear comes tearing across his yard, the yard in between his yard and our yard, and then is chasing our cat. And she's just running pell-mell trying to get away from him. I kid you not, Daisy gets up from just laying there, breaks the uh, little corkscrew uh, post out of the ground and takes off after Bear, T-bones him, knocks him over on his back and just stands over him snarling, you know, teeth bared like she's going to rip his throat out. And he's just like, you know, wide eyed. <laughs> like, what just happened? I have no idea what just happened. I wasn't going to do anything. I was just playing or whatever until the cat gets away. Uh, Princess got away. She was fine. And it was a, like, it was a good, you know, five, 10 seconds of tension between Daisy and Bear before she finally let him up. And then he just kind of like went back over to his yard, tail tucked between his legs. And then we were able to get her, uh, Daisy that is, uh, put away. But great, great story here. This Georgia sheepdog out walking with uh, his owner. When all of a sudden this pack of coyotes, eight coyotes or more, start going after the sheep. And... The owner, he does this interview, he's talking about it and explaining this wasn't a quick thing. And usually, you know, if it's like one or two coyotes, they're small. And a big dog like a Great Pyrenees will scare them off and they will not have any interest in being around or sticking around. But eight plus coyotes, well, these guys thought they could take the sheepdog and get some of that sheep. And they have this big epic battle up and down the creek bed. This great Pyrenees kills eight of them and then goes missing for days. And then when he finally shows up again, he is very wounded. And there was a, a big fundraising campaign to raise, uh, I think it was $15,000, which is a crazy amount of money. So as to not euthanize the dog to get him some care. And, uh, and, and now he's okay. Now he's, uh, you know, recovering. So there's a happy story, also a really cool story. But before we run out of time completely and totally, I do want to say a few things, you know, as preparation of a kind of a sort for tonight's talk at Youth Group on the subject of worship. And I've been thinking about this topic of worship, and I've got a very broad mandate to talk with the kids about encouragement about worship. You know, other talks leading up to this one and previous Wednesday nights have been, you know, more keyed in on specific aspects of worship or, th you know, the things related to worship or why we should or what it is and, and all that. But I'm supposed to give some encouragement about worship. And one of the things I've been considering uh, on this question is as you're getting ready to address students, youth, teenagers, you, you want to give them something useful that is going to be a help to them and that isn't just, uh, you know, 
<laughs> Ignatius, the ultimate youth pastor, uh, like I was playing you some clips for him uh, in the previous two episodes. <laughs> uh, don't want to be that guy. But what you do want to do is you want to edify these young minds and you want to tell them truly uh, something that's going to be beneficial to them and their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. And that has me thinking with regards to worship, the name of God and what we ascribe to it, what characteristics, what qualities we ascribe to God, what accomplishments we recognize and give him credit for, what good in our lives we thank him for and we praise him for, what hope we have for the future we remind ourselves is found in him. All of that uh, on some level is for our benefit. We're called to it and it does please the Lord for us to obey and for us to trust him and for us to praise him and to worship him rightly in spirit and in truth. We're called to that. So we know that that is God's command and that it is proper, but it occurred to me one of the things that we might need to recognize and observe is that praising God, it's it's not like when you or I get discouraged and things are just not going our way and we're sad and you know, somebody comes along, a friend or a family member comes along and gives us a pep talk. You know, that happens. I've been a bit discouraged here lately. And and actually, as we're coming to the close of the year, that's one of the traditions my wife and I have is we get together and we talk about the previous year, what all happened, what we were expecting to happen versus what actually happened, what we would do differently. Also, what we want to remember that went very well that we want to expand on in the next year we talk about then plans for the next year, what our expectations are, what our goals are for our family, what we want to change, what we want to do differently, what we want to stop doing, what we want to start doing, et cetera, et cetera. It occurs to me that around about April of this year, I stopped, we stopped filling in uh, like we had been our personal organizers. And then I think we got to May or June and we stopped entirely. You know, from April to June, I think we we tried to do some catch up a time or two, and then from about halfway through the year to the present, we haven't picked them up again. I certainly haven't picked up mine, but but we haven't picked ours up together like we were on a regular basis. And for one, that's unfortunate, but for two, why? Right? Why did that happen? Why is that the case? Well, the, the simple answer is that I got really discouraged. I got really uh, I guess you could say down on making plans and on paying too close attention to the weekly ins and outs. And part of the reason for this, uh, without getting into an oversharing situation, part of the reason for this was here I was working really hard in my job and I hadn't started it all that terribly long before, but I was getting really good feedback. Hey, you're doing really great. You're killing it, keep it up, keep doing what you're doing. Everybody really likes what they're seeing from you and getting from you. You're learning it really, really quick. Well, I followed that up, especially with inflation doing what it was this past year and me having eight children and my wife to provide for, me being the sole breadwinner. I followed up all of this uh, positive affirmation I was getting with an ask for what uh, a cost of living uh, uh, increase uh, might look like this year, whether there would be one, is there going to be one? When will there be one? How much will it be? Also too, how about a performance increase? What does that look like given that you guys really uh, think highly and you're speaking highly of the performance I'm putting out? I'm no longer uh, an unknown variable like I was when you hired me. I have a lot of experience. I'm performing at a high level. Can we talk about a raise? Because I'm not keeping up with inflation and it's really kicking our butts. And, and I, 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 you know, again, I didn't get any kind of a raise to take this job compared with my previous job, which was more technician level. Here I'm doing systems integration, and I would think that that would pay more than being a technician. 
right? I would think that's a move up. And so also the pay should go up. I basically was told, we really love the work you're doing, but the answer is no, we, we can't give you a raise, maybe in November, right? Maybe in November. But if you want to come in on your days off, your seven days off, uh, after working seven, 12-hour days, if you want to come in on your days off and pick up some extra, extra shifts, you can do that. And, uh, and, and then you can make some extra money that way. Well, those seven days off were very precious to me and my family. We had all kinds of things that were planned for those. And among those was me working on my book, podcasting, taking my family places, uh, harder and harder to do when inflation is eating into your you know, household budget more and more, and you can't help it. And uh, I honestly, I, I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I kind of just gave up on keeping our personal organizers on a weekly basis because I, I was just frustrated and uh, I, didn't, I didn't want to look at it, uh, to be quite honest. So what happens then, right? What, what happens instead is here and there, I think some family, some friends close to me, they see that I seem a bit discouraged. I seem a bit downcast and they start giving me pep talks or, you know, maybe they ask, Hey, you know, how's, how's things going? How, how are you doing? And maybe in some cases they encourage me They say, Hey, you know, I'm just, I know you're working a lot here lately and just really respect how hard you're working or I really appreciate you or I really uh, just want to encourage you to keep, keep doing what you're doing and you're doing a lot of really good things and just keep it up and all that. Right. So, so people start reminding you when you get discouraged, if you've got good friends and good family around you, they start reminding you of good things to cheer you up and to keep you from getting discouraged and to keep you from getting weary, growing weary in doing what is good as we're called to a good Christian family, good Christian friends around you will uh, help you in that way. And that's, what that that is what encouragement is right and god bless my family and friends who provided that who helped in that regard but that's not what worship is <laughs> i just i maybe this is a, a a silly thing to key in on but we we might need to that's not what worship is we are not giving god a pep talk god is not discouraged he is not growing weary and doing what is good he is not uh, you know, down on his luck and things just, ah, oh, man, I, I really thought that was going to pan out differently. And I really thought I was going to get that raise and increase my capacity and, and all that kind of stuff. That's not what it is for God. And that's not why we worship. Why we worship is because we need to remember and recognize and affirm the attributes of God, the accomplishments and the promises and the commands of God, because there's a blessing in that for us. We need to remind one another. We need to encourage one another to be reminded and to affirm and to recognize and to, if you will, if you can forgive the technician-oriented metaphor here, to recalibrate our view of the world according to the character and the attributes and the promises and the commands of God. Because when we do that, it mitigates discouragement. It mitigates temptation. It mitigates uh, error. And it also mitigates the potential for heresy if there's false teaching that is a temptation. But we remind ourselves, remind one another, singing corporately worship to God, praising God, even if it's not in song form, just verbally speaking his praises, reminding ourselves who he is what his character is and that he does not change and that he is faithful and true, et cetera, et cetera. When, when we do that, there's a great benefit in our hearts and our minds, the peace that passes all understanding, guarding our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus, for instance. That's a New Testament phrase that is relevant here. So I don't know. I, that, I've got to give it a bit more thought before I get to this evening and of course, there's more besides that I want to talk about. For instance, I love the song, He is Worthy. It's phrased in the form of a question. Is he worthy? But really, it's a rhetorical question. And so 
he is worthy. And that's the refrain again and again is he is worthy. He is worthy of this. You know, if you could summarize the song briefly in a casual way, it would be, have you taken a look at the world lately? It's kind of broken. It's kind of messed up. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot that's not going right. Have you just been really discouraged at how much suffering and sin and death there is in the world? But isn't it true about God that this is the way he is? Isn't it true about God that this is what he has done? Isn't it true about God that this is what he will do? Isn't this true about God that here is his commitment to us in Christ? Isn't that true of him? Isn't he worthy of all our praise, all of our worship, all of our recognition, all of our thankfulness, all of our gratitude? Isn't that true? And the answer is yes. Yes, he is worthy. And we don't make him worthy by saying so. He is worthy whether we say it or not. Our great blessing is in recognizing his worthiness and in praising him and in affirming and reminding ourselves and one another of his great character and his great attributes. And that's the big idea. That's the big idea behind worship. And that is my encouragement to worship. But as I said, I got to run. I really do. Speaking of helping out with youth group this evening and also having a day job, (laughs) I got to run and get to it. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.